One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi, Kev. Thanks very much for having me back on. Uh, very good to be here. I'm Sam Karp. I'm a Crystal Palace supporter, and you can find me on Twitter at Sam double underscore Karp. Hi, guys. Good to be with you. Uh, I'm Steve McGookin. I'm a Spurs fan from based in Belfast. And uh, in a previous life, I was the chairman of the New York City Spurs Supporters Club. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining me today, guys. First off, I just want to apologize to to the, the loyal listeners out there. It's been a while since we recorded a show. We had the international break and then I was on vacation, came back and got sick. We're finally back here for for the run in. Um, to talk about all things Premier League. Uh, I figure we'll start off with a, a moment of history today with Erling Haaland matching the Premier League uh, record for goals in a single season. He's on 34. There's still... How many matches do they have left? They still have six matches to go. You'd imagine he's probably going to break it. Um, honestly, just incredible stuff from him in his, in his debut season in the Premier League. Are you surprised that he was able to adapt to the Premier League so easily? Um, I don't know if I'm surprised. It's funny actually looking back to the start of the season um, because people were talking about Haaland coming in at City and making comparisons with Nunes coming in at Liverpool. Um, You know, essentially two teams that had kind of, I guess, been missing that focal point, that number nine. Um, But Mm. despite that, had been putting up these incredible numbers, um, amazing title races year after year. And I suppose the sort of the argument was who whichever of these two players performs better um that team is ultimately going to win the league um and you know i remember watching the community shield at the start of the season liverpool won that game 3-1 i think nunez scored late on and harland didn't have the best game around quite a few clips going around on social media of essentially just with you know, you know when you kind of got there's that music playing in the background and all the notes are off because of like every time Harlem does something wrong and people are kind of quite quick to write him off as is kind of the case um, when when a player has a bad game and has arrived from a from a foreign competition into the Premier League uh, and then I think within a month of that he scored two goals in his debut against West Ham had bagged a hat trick against Palace when they'd been two 0 down at half time and you know it was already like streets ahead. Uh, in the in the race for the golden boot um so very very quickly proved that that was wrong um but I just, you know i don't think anyone will really be that surprised that he has done that it was pretty clear from his brief time at salzburg and then at dortmund that he was this superhuman generational ultra confident talent um who wherever he goes is going to score goals let alone in in a team like city um and I think also the fact that he'd scored goals in the Champions League before coming to England, you know, regularly doing it against top, top opposition um, was proof enough in itself that he was going to be able to do it against, you know, not only top sides in the Premier League, but also, you know, the other sort of 14, 14 teams that are in there. Um, 
And I think also just like when you look at his attributes, like he's physically imposing, he's incredibly quick, which was always going to bode well in a league that's often talked about for its speed and its physicality. So those two things, um, you know, set him up for success in the first place anyway. So I think he's already blessed with these unique, natural attributes before you even get into the talent of you know his finishing ability and that kind of sixth sense that he has to just know where the ball is going to drop in the box like how many goals can you remember that he scored this season where the ball's kind of rolled to the back post and he's kind of just been stood there to tap it into an empty net like I just always you know people sort of say those are easy goals but I just think there's a there's an innate skill to be able to to be able to do that um and then, as I kind of alluded to before, the fact that he's just been parachuted into the best team in the league that has scored bundles of goals in the last few seasons without a striker um, is just another reason that we shouldn't be surprised by this. Um, you know, he's surrounded by the best creative talent in the league. He's managed by the best manager in the world. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, I think I don't, I don't really want to. I don't want to sort of undermine the achievement and say it's all been easy because he deserves credit. He's only 22. There was so much expectation on him coming in and we've seen so many players arrive in the Premier League with, you know, big transfer fees attached to their name, um, big expectations and haven't quite delivered on it. Um, and he's also missed some games this season because of injury as well, which makes it even more impressive that he's done this with six games still to go. Um, so, yeah, it would just be it would just be interesting to see how many how many more he gets before the end of the season. But but no, I'm not I'm not surprised that he's done it. No, I I totally agree with all of that. Absolutely not surprised. I mean, I I think anyone who had who had watched him on TV uh, play in any context in any competition, I think, was probably um, expecting expecting something sensational. Uh, and you know, the, this season really has been phenomenal for him. I mean, to 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 get the league record and also. The record across all competitions as well, you know, the fifty, the fifty goals is, um, and that that has stood for what nearly a century apparently. So it's just an amazing achievement. Uh, and and also when you think about it, as as uh, as Sam mentioned, you know, you you're dropping him into probably the best the best team or the best squad that um, that the Premier League can offer uh, with with the best with the best manager. And also, you know, the City now have both uh, Holland and Julian Alvarez, and you know that's kind of like that will turn out over time. That'll turn out to be like having uh, Shearer and Andy Cole in the same team, or or in a in a baseball context, like having Mike Trout and Shohei Otani, except your team actually wins something. <laughs> But I mean, I, I mean, just according to an Opta stat I saw earlier, I mean, Holland has scored in sixty-seven percent of his starts across all competitions, and the second highest percentage is Alvarez at sixty-one. So you know, when you've got those two guys who are, who are firing the way they are, it's uh, it, it's inevitable that uh, that one of them is gonna is gonna turn out to be. Um, to be the sort of player that we saw Holland be this this uh, this season. Uh, oh, and Alvarez scored a fantastic goal against Fulham today as well. So, uh, um, I mean, talking of City, just for a second, I mean, I think it's interesting that Holland's understanding with uh, with Grealish looks to have been improving um, recently. Uh, and and you remember all the talk at, at the time about the potential Harry Kane transfer, how 
you know, City should have bought Harry instead of Grealish. Well, you know, that that looks out like it's uh, like it's turned out okay for them. Um, I won't come on to talk about Harry Kane in another context as well. But um, but I think the interesting thing also is that Holland grew up a Leeds fan, and, uh, and what what they wouldn't give for uh, for even one a small percentage of his uh, his goal tally for this season. I think that would that would work for them. But there we go. Yeah, I don't mind uh, holding my hands up here. At the start of the season, I said I thought he'd score 15 or 16 goals. So just about wrong by double um, on my end. I think some of my concerns, and you touched on it a little bit at the start there, Sam, was coming into the season, Manchester City moving to using a kind of a focal point number nine after winning the, the league two years in a row, if memory serves, playing like more with a false nine. Um which Jesus then went to Arsenal and then obviously had the year he had before he got injured. Um, but yeah, it was just like, it'll take them time to to adjust the tactics to fit him into it. Um, he might, you know, face face a little bit more difficulty in the Premier League than he had previously. Uh, but just no, <laughs> it turned up being very incorrect. Harry Kane right now, by the by, on 25 goals, would have beaten last year's golden boot total, which was 23, <laughs> shared by Salah and Son. And he's going to finish like 10 behind Holland. Like, I know. just to I put know. it into context, how insane the season Holland is having. <laughs> um, but yeah, just just absolutely incredible stuff. I, I do still think there was, there was some uh, merit to thinking that it wouldn't go this well. I, I don't know what percentile chance it was that he'd, he'd go off for, for 34 or even more and break the record his first year, but... Regardless, he's hit it, um, and and uh, yeah, all credit to him and, and credit to City for now sitting in first with a game in hand. We'll obviously see how the the Premier League title race winds up, but uh, you will not hear us discussing bottling on this particular show. Thing, sorry, Kev, just because you did ask mm. uh, when the the record when you think the record might be broken. Yeah. I think actually, given the the way that City are likely to be playing in multiple competitions for the foreseeable future, it's hard really to see anyone except Holland breaking the record at, at any time uh, anytime soon. Yeah, I was going to say like probably next year, no, but there's yeah. no reason like the city the city side isn't get going to get any weaker, and he's only going to get better with with the season in the Premier League under his belt. So if he stays fit, like I can I can see him breaking it again next season. Okay, well, assuming that, and I agree with you guys, assuming he's the person that breaks his own record, when will somebody not named Erling Haaland break whatever record he ends up setting? Uh, years and years and years from now, I think. Like, is he's sort of he's getting into that territory where we used to see with, you know, Messi and Ronaldo for all those years in terms of they'd just be so far out in front of anyone else in Europe in terms of the numbers they were putting up year after year. Um, you know. Again, I've used the word generational before, and I think that's what Haaland is at the moment. Um, you know, it's kind of a, it's it's not Ronaldo and Messi anymore. It's going to be him and him and Mbappe are the ones putting up those numbers on a regular basis. So, um, so yeah, I mean, you know, I, I feel like it could be <laughs> it would be after Haaland retires. I think by the next time we see someone do this sort of thing, um, yeah, that's kind of I think that's sort of how I'd, how long I I put on it. Unless he moves to Leeds. Well, yeah. <laughs> and then he'll break the championship record. <laughs> um, cool. All right. We'll move on from there uh, to talk about some of the clubs that we'll be seeing not too far from now. Uh, in the last week or so, Burnley won the championship title and Sheffield United earned themselves 
uh, automatic promotion, although it seems like there's some some financial issues going on there with them potentially not able to even pay the promotion payments. You'd imagine that the Premier League money will help that. Maybe it's more of a more of a timing issue. But uh, not too long since we've seen either of these teams in the Premier League. Are you excited to see them rejoining? Excited probably isn't the right word. Um, you always sort of, I suppose you always want new teams. As a fan who goes to games, you want new grounds to go and visit. And Burnley and Sheffield United have been um you know regulars in the in the premier league over the last couple of decades i suppose you'd say so um i don't know if it's that exciting the, the sort of identity of the two teams getting automatic promotes is that exciting um although we might get a bit of a wild card from the playoffs with teams like luton luton in there um which i think would be really interesting to see them in the premier league um but you have got to give both burnley and sheffield united credit obviously um burnley have had an unbelievable season in the cup the, Think that I'm not. I don't think they're quite going to break the record for the number of points, but um, they've gone pretty close. Uh, and also, just in terms of completely revamping their style of play under Vincent Company, uh, the way they've done it has been incredibly impressive. Overhauling the squad a fair bit as well, um, especially because when you think about when they went down last season, there was quite a lot of uncertainty about the ownership. Um, Sean Dyche obviously leaving after such a long time at the club, uh, you know, they've really sort of had to embrace this complete change of direction and they've you know, completely smashed it really. So it's, it's been a really, really impressive season from them. Um, Sheffield United again, just obviously haven't bounced back straight away after relegation, but it's, it's impressive that, that they've, that they've managed to do it again. But I think it just also, I think it also speaks to the impact of the parachute payment system and uh, you know, yeah. the impact that that still has in that division. It shows that rele- relegated clubs really do have a very good chance of getting promoted back to the Premier League within three years of going down. Um, you know, as I say, Burnley have been able to, while revamping their start, they bring in the players who have helped them do that. Um, they've also been able to lean on Vincent Company's, I guess, reputation and sort of contacts and some of the loan players that they've been able to get in, um, which is helpful. Uh, but I think just in so going back to that sort of financial side of it, I've got a Burnley supporting friend who goes to most games home and away, and he's not really missed one in the last few weeks. He lives in London, but he's just been going to the home games, away games. But it's, I think he's been fairly surprised just at how poor some of the teams down there are. Um, and you just look at teams like Reading, Wigan, uh, who I think got relegated, whose relegation was confirmed yesterday, and sort of the perilous financial state they're in. Um, there's probably like a more existential conversation we could have really in terms of, you know, the impact of when these teams do get relegated from the Premier League and they do have these parachute payments to lean on and can still pay these, I guess, Premier League style wages um, for two or three seasons. Uh, the knock on impact that has on the clubs below them trying to compete and spending beyond their means, it can have like a really, really damaging impact. And I think the championship generally is in a bit of a mess at the moment. Um, but Without trying to be too negative, fair play to Birmingham Sheffield United. Yeah, I think um, you know it's a happy time for Alistair Campbell and Sean Bean, certainly. But uh, <laughs> it, I mean, it's it is always as you say, Sam. I think it's always good to see well-followed teams play in the top flight. You know, a, a, a traditional English football grounds filled 
filled to the doors with passionate fans. Um, in, in terms of whether these these two teams and and whoever the playoff winner turns out to be, and it, it would be great to see Luton uh, go up. To be honest, uh, whether they're here for the long haul, I think like like every year around about this time, it comes down to. Um, how they're able to strengthen their squad, you know, getting the getting the right players in, particularly some that have Premiership experience who can improve the overall group is is pretty crucial. I mean, like Forest last season, talking about you know traditional uh, strongly followed teams, it was good to see them back after, especially after so long. But then, I think we all thought, what on earth are they doing buying so many players? Um, but now you know it. It looks like they they have a chance to save themselves in the end. But we'll see. But that you know their minus thirty two goal difference isn't isn't a good sign. So um, you know it, it, it's it's possible, always possible um, with every new season that the newly promoted teams might might end up just joining the annual relegation kind of merry go round. But then <clears throat> look at how well teams like uh, Brighton and Brentford, especially, have done. Since since they came up, contrasted with uh, with how inconsistent Everton and Leicester have been this season, uh, even West Ham, I suppose to a certain extent, but the, they they should probably be okay now. I think um, I think it probably is coming down to the wire with with any two from from nineteenth up to up to Leeds and sixteenth could probably go down with Southampton, and and you mentioned earlier Bournemouth. Bournemouth have done a fantastic job of, of late, and and it is just amazing what what a little self-belief can do for a team, but there's still four or five games to go. So, you know, overall, um, uh, the, the, the Premiership needs a mix of those traditional powerhouses, traditional football powerhouses, and the unexpected up, upstart teams uh, that you don't expect to get into the Premiership. And and Sam mentioned the, the, the parachute payments. Um, and, and I think the fundamental problem uh, going forward will continue to be that wealth gap between the top and the bottom of the Premiership, and and as well as ownership and and the conduct, the the conduct of the club and how it's organised, I think that largely comes down to the effect of the Champions League. Uh, you know, if the the self perpetuating riches that come from participating in the Champions League are so much greater than can be earned domestically, and that wealth continues to be shared among you know a, a very limited universe of teams. Then it's hardly a surprise that the you know the league stratifies very sharply between the top six or seven or even eight, and you know the bottom ten, uh, and that you know that's good from a competitive perspective, I suppose. Um, in that you know every season there seem to be there seem to be fewer teams that are left literally with nothing to play for going into the final few games. Um, the broadcasters are happy, the neutral fans are happy, the only people. Not happy or or fans of the of the uh, team that that get into a bad run and um, and and find themselves falling down the league. So, so yeah, it's uh, I think that that wealth issue is still one that's going to have to be um, have to be addressed uh, over over the next few seasons. But as long as the Champions League keeps the keeps so much um, so much uh, potential revenue in the hands of so few clubs uh, I can't see anything anything changing there I just want to touch on I guess the chances of Sheffield United and Burnley staying up because Steve mentioned some I guess some about Forest in terms of how they approached last summer and I think like 
if you look at what influenced that, they had so many players on loan during that promotion season, so they kind of had no choice but to dip into the market. It was sort of, I think there's a few factors that often I kind of look at when teams come up, and like that sort of that's one of them in, ter- in terms of how many players they've got on loan and whether, you know, how basically how important those players have been in those teams getting promoted. And you look at Burnley, um, I think two of their starting centre backs have been on loan this season. Uh, their left back Matson is on loan from Chelsea. Nathan Teller, who's scored about 20 goals I think because I'm learning from Southampton who might want to keep hold of him given that where they're going to be playing their football next season um, <laughs> and seeing the success that he's had down there so that's already sort of four starters off the top of your head that they're going to need to potentially either you know negotiate another season for or replace um, Sheffield United it was sort of exposed in that FA Cup semi-final against City that two of their best players this season have been on loan from Manchester City so um, that's already a kind of some a disadvantage is two sides um and then another thing you sort of look at is goal scorers um we spoke about Mitrovic before I think at Fulham and um Tony at Brentford that's a big reason that they that those two sides stayed up in the past two seasons um you look at Burnley and Sheffield United there's not really anyone a standout player you can see sort of scoring 15 goals for them next year so they'll have to go into the market in those positions in the same way that, you know, every team outside the top six is looking for a for a 15-goal-a-season striker, really, apart from, say, Brentford and Fulham. Um, so that's another area that you'd be looking at. And then Steve alluded to the fact that there are some teams down there this season, like West Ham, and I think it's kind of been a bit of a wake-up call for a few of those sides, the fact that, you know, Leicester, West Ham, uh, I guess Everton being down there again, if they manage to stay up, it'll be a real wake-up call in the sense that um, they won't they, they won't want to be down there again essentially so you can't see them sort of rest, sitting on their hands this summer so they'll probably look to strengthen which is maybe one of the things that will work against um, Burnley and Sheffield United but as, as Steve said you know both, I don't think many people would have predicted them to stay up this year so um, and there are some incredibly bad teams in the bottom half of the Premier League so <laughs> there's every there's every chance but there are definitely some some challenges that both have to address over the summer mm. I don't know how many wake up calls Everton need, but yeah, maybe, maybe this will be maybe this will be the one that takes for them if they manage to stay up. Um, a, a lot of great points made by you guys. Uh, I am really interested to see how Vincent Company's uh, brand of football will play in the Premier League at a club like Burnley or at a club like Tottenham. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm just really curious because like the last time we saw Burnley, as you guys were mentioning, it was it was dice ball. It was really defensive. They got relegated. They had a lot of really old players um, that had been in the system for a long time, maybe kind of turned a bit of a deaf ear towards towards Dyche and some of his um, antics and stuff like that. But now they're like an entire, it's an entirely new squad, a new manager, a new play style. Um, so I am really curious to see how that goes. And also the culture shock it gives people that haven't really been as aware of what's been rumbling down there in the championship at, at Burnley. But yeah, we'll see. Um, also, you guys mentioned some of the teams that are currently in that relegation fight uh i think i'm personally pretty comfortable cutting southampton are are you guys there yet and and any other teams that you feel comfortable will will be the ones that end up going down that'll get replaced by these two i i I don't think there's anyone other than southampton that you could actually write off at this point i think southampton have just been unfortunate in terms of the their inconsistency uh i mean they went ahead today didn't they against um uh, 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 Bournemouth, yeah, but yeah, and they they couldn't hold on to it. So, 
Yeah, I think I think Southampton at this stage are the are the only team that really. I mean, there's still four or five games to go. So they they're probably the only team that you would say uh, are probably gone. Yeah, I've been flirting with. I feel like everyone's been flirting with rising of Southampton all season, but not actually wanting to just because of how close they still have been to. They're still within touching distance, essentially. Like no one team has been sort of cut ten points adrift as often tends to happen um but looking at the table now you know they're six points off 17th with um with only four games to play so there's nothing really to suggest that they're going to have what it takes to get out of it um but just the, that relegation battle in general you know we were talking before we came on the call that there were sort of nine teams involved in it probably as recently as three weeks ago maybe um and it's kind of started to separate itself out but i think what that's also um what's also become apparent is just how bad some of those five sides are like i i saw leicester play at selhurst park um not that long ago everton last weekend um the south southampton game as well i mean we've been privileged that we've managed to play some of those the four of the teams in that bottom five in the past few weeks um and they've just been so so poor i mean looking at the form table now there's only two wins between those five teams in all of their last five fixtures um which tells you and you know just how badly they've been playing and they're not sort of putting any sort of run together and you think if just one or two wins for any of those teams in these last four games would be absolutely priceless but it is it is really hard to call at the moment um i think leeds look like they're in free fall which is strange because it wasn't that long ago that you were looking at them and they were sort of you know the challenge for any team down there is scoring goals and Leeds seem to be scoring fairly regularly whether it's through Nonto who've been in really good form Bamford coming back into the side um but ever since that sort of happened it's it's flipped and they you know they can't seem to score as many and they just can't seem to stop letting them in at the other end either um so you do wonder whether Leeds are going to drop in um Forest seem to be showing a little bit more fight I know they conceded those two goals against Brentford's lot uh, yesterday but obviously the game against Brighton was a really big win and then he, they came close to getting something at Anfield so you feel as if you know maybe something is brewing there but and and then yeah Le- Leicester you just feel that squad a, a dangerous saying too good to go down but you can't like getting relegated with a squad that has James Madison, Harvey Barnes, uh, Yuri Tielemans in it would just be absolutely criminal um, and then at Everton another one that you don't hold out much hope for them, but you wonder if they might just end up scraping out. And I can I can almost see the bottom three ended up being ending up being Southampton, Forest, and Leeds. But, but yeah, see, I think there's a lot of surprises left, and it'll be pretty exciting to watch as a neutral, but pretty grim for for those five teams involved. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, it's it's definitely going to be an interesting time here down the stretch, because uh, you know it seems like the top four is just going to be the top four now. But City versus Arsenal still obviously I think for the title in that relegation race is, is going to be truly something. I'm, you know, there are not many things I'd rather <laughs> not be than a Spurs fan right now. But if I was in that relegation fight, it would probably be a pretty, pretty nerve wracking time. Uh, all right, we'll yeah. take a quick break and then we'll be back with club specific questions for each of our guests. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, and we are back. Uh, Sam, we were talking about it a little bit before we hit record. Um, but uh, Roy Hutchinson hasn't seemingly done a whole lot. Um, to get you firing, but all of a sudden you've scored multiple goals in four of your last five matches. You've won three of them, only lost one. Set yourselves up at 40 points, which surely is enough to be safe this season, especially with all the teams we were just talking about still in the middle of that relegation race. Um, if it hasn't been like a big tactical shift or anything from Hodgson, what do you think brought about this this very like night and day shift at Palace over the last month or so? Yeah, it's been pretty wild to be honest I'm not sure anyone could have expected it and Hodgson actually walked there's a clip going around of him walking into his post-match press conference yesterday and he says um, before any of you ask yes I think we're safe so if Hodgson thinks it I'm happy to think it as well so I think we can start planning for life again in the Premier League next season um, but yeah as you say it's, it's funny the thing is he hasn't done all that much differently and I don't think I think there was a lot of apprehension when he came in just based on what happened at Watford last year and sort of how his time at Palace came to an end you know, things felt like they'd gone a little bit stale um, and then obviously at Watford I think this, looking back on that you know the squad he inherited at Watford was nowhere near as good as the one that he's inherited here um, and they were on a bit of a downward spiral anyway so perhaps it wasn't quite the right fit um, but yeah I think there weirdly I think there are some parallels to the situation that he inherited when Frank de Boer left the club and he took over from him. Um, I'm not trying to sort of say that Vieira was anywhere near as bad as, as Frank de Boer was, um, but there were sort of some similar issues at the end of his tenure in terms of trying to play a system that didn't necessarily suit the players that he had, also trying to shoehorn players into positions which they weren't particularly comfortable playing. So De Boer, for example, used to play like Luka Milivojevic at right back. Um, and we sort of, perhaps the, it wasn't quite as dramatic this time, but Vieira was pretty stubborn in picking the same 11. Um, he'd have players like Jeffrey Schlatt playing as a, a CDM, um, which just, you know, it's, it's not the best approach really. And so I think all that Hodgson has done, as he did when he took over from De Boer all those years ago, is... He's let a look at the squad, realise it's a pretty good squad and just put the best players on the pitch in their best positions and just told them to go and play and kind of given them a little pat on the back, told them how good they are and they just seem to be responding to it. Um, I think there's there's no player that that that, that sort of has borne out in more than, than Eze, who's just kind of been, he's kind of been the face of this revival, I guess, because obviously you typically associate a Palace recovery with Wilfred Zaha going on a run of form, but he's actually been out injured since um, since the first half of Hodgson's first game back. So um, Eze, who just couldn't get in the team under Vieira, uh, has 
suddenly become kind of you know the focal point of everything good that's happening he's he's been scoring pretty freely um he just seems to have so much more energy as well um so and so I don't know what quite was going on there with him and Vieira but the fact that you know the fact that Vieira wasn't picking Eze just seems like an increasingly increasingly odd um odd decision given just the talent of the kids um how exciting he is to watch and there is just a sense that everyone's playing with a little bit more freedom now than they were under Vieira which based on what we saw last season and kind of in terms of the higher intensity pressing football that came to, to came to be associated with Vieira's first season in charge like not I don't think anyone would have expected you know the manager he replaced to come back in and then reinvigorate that style of play this season but that's what's happened and it's been really really fun to watch and I don't think even the most optimistic of Palace fan uh, would have imagined that we'd be safe with four games to go when when Hodgson took over. Um, I think a lot of us were expecting it to go down to the wire. So, yeah, I think everyone's pretty grateful for the for the job that he's done, and a lot of people will be going back through their Twitter and deleting some of the some of the reactions that they that they had when he first got appointed. <laughs> yeah, kind of related to to some of what you were saying about thinking it was going to be touch and go to the wire. Um, did you? I think you went winless in twelve consecutive matches, and then now you have four wins in the last six. <laughs> that's that's the the kind of turnaround for people that haven't been uh, watching them closely. That's gone on lately. Uh, you mentioned Roy saying you're safe, so I won't ask you if you think you're safe. So as you say, let's kind of look forward. Is there any chance that Roy's like, well, this this manager Malark's pretty easy. Maybe I'll just stay on, or or do you have a sense of the direction the club want to go um, after this season? Who knows? I think I'd, it would feel quite weird if Hodgson were to get it. Um, it would. I, it very much has felt like he's been, you know, Steve Parrish has gone right. We're in a bit of trouble here. Who's who's looking and looked at essentially the struggles that teams in our position have had in appointing a manager for so, on such a short term basis. So he was pretty fortunate in the sense that he had that existing relationship with Hodgson um, and. Is it like we've seen with managers like Gracia, um, you know, Leicester appointing Dean Smith. It's been really, really hard for some of the teams around us to to bring in a, you know, a sort of, I guess, a top level manager in the same way that maybe Villa were able to when they were struggling at the start of the season. Um, so, I think personally that it's better for him to leave at the end of the season on a high. Um, he kind of he's often alluded to the fact that he didn't get to leave the club in the way that he would have liked. You know, he, his, I think his last game managing us was in front of a limited capacity crowd because of COVID restrictions, and he didn't quite get the farewell that he probably deserved. Um, so I feel like there's no better way really for him to go out than kind of having kept us up. Uh, hopefully, add a few more points to that tally before the end of the season, rather than risk. Um, Risk having to risk uh, having too much of a good thing, and then things kind of going sour in October, for example, and just having to have an awkward conversation then. Um, and I think the ambitions of the club is probably to have a go back into the market, have a look at who's available, because there are quite a lot of good managers available now. You think of Rogers Potter, who may end up at will probably end up at maybe slightly bigger clubs than than Palace. Um, but we've been linked with a few names abroad. Um, I feel. The club wants to go in that direction. They've seen what sort of happened with that first season under Vieira, which gave us all a taste of, you know, what it can be like. But I think the crucial thing will just be kind of 
continuing to recruit in the way that we have done in the past few seasons. Um, and, you know, I think Vieira's season was so good last season, partially because we, you know, added really, uh, really good centre backs and Gay and Anderson brought in Elise. Um, and so, if we can just kind of strengthen as well as getting the managerial appointment right, I think. Um, that should stand us in good stead for next season, um, and it'll be pretty important. It'll be important to make that appointment early because historically we've never been particularly good at acting decisively when appointing a new manager. I think Vieira was appointed only about a month before the season started, and um, we'd missed out on one or two of our top targets. Uh, I think back to when De Boer again was appointed. Uh, that was sort of like a summer saga that went on for quite a while. So hopefully the board is looking at it now, looking at who's available, looking at who would be interested in the job. Um, and I think anyone looking at it now, as opposed to, you know, when Vieira left, there was sort of, we were a bit of a laughing stock really, and he wouldn't have blamed any manager for sort of looking at that situation and thinking, well, well I'm not going to be able to, if Vieira wasn't given the time to turn that around, then I don't really, I don't really want to go into a club like that. But I think having watched the way we've played in the last five games, looking at some of the talent that we have, I think it's probably become a, an increasingly attractive job for someone out there. So I think there'll be candidates. Um, I'm sure Parrish is probably, there's part of him that thinks maybe we give it to Roy for another season. But I just, I, you know, he's, he's a 75-year-old man. I'm sure he's got more relaxing ways of spending his Saturdays. Um, and I think it would be in everyone's interest, really, if we sort of, had a very nice farewell in the sunshine on that last game against Forest and um, and went our separate ways. That makes sense. Well, a, a great transition you've given us there of talking about a laughing stock who might be playing so poorly that it could talk a manager out of potentially joining. Steve, let's talk about Tottenham Hotspur. Um, so um, today's match was just wild. A 4-3 against Liverpool, although our matches against them are always just bananas. Um Come all the way back from 3-0, equalize 3-3, concede 30 seconds later to lose 4-3. In just the, the micro-context, just of today, were you more disappointed with the start, yet again, and no. result? Or were you somewhat pleased yeah. to at least see signs of life there in the second half? No, no, no. I, I, two things, Kevin. I think I was resigned to uh, the, how we started today. But I think also you have to see it in the context of this week, this week's games, the run of games. I mean, this was always going to be a crucial week for us. I mean, even with the expectation that we might have actually won the games leading up to it. But, you know, we had we had to go to Newcastle with the uh, play Man U and then we ended up at, at Liverpool. And I'll come back to the other two in, in a second, but. I was saying before we came on on the air, it's like I, I texted my friend when Richarlison equalized and I just said, you couldn't script this. But then 30 seconds later, I, I texted him back saying, well, of course you could. Of course you could. This was today was absolutely the worst example of Spursy, because even though you knew what was coming, it was still a surprise when it when it did. And it's kind of it's the hope that kills you, Kev. And if you haven't learned this by now, then I haven't done a good enough job in in teaching you. You know, we we've we've conceded 17 Premier League goals in April. That's the most that's the most we've ever conceded in a calendar month in the Premier League. And once again, you know, we we don't start playing until we go behind. It's it's a familiar pattern. This rope-a-dope play on the break doesn't work if you're not controlling the ball. And I thought, you know, Chris Waddle 
said on the BBC commentary today, you don't wait to see what happens. You make things happen. And you, you never get a sense with Spurs at the moment that we're trying to do that for most of the game. I mean, that, that, that you watched it. The first half was a complete shambles. Our confidence is shot to hell. The players should be embarrassed, but I think they're incapable of being embarrassed, Kev, or it, or it doesn't matter. I mean, they can refund the funds who go, the fans who go to every away game, but I, that won't make any difference. We just we seem to go go into every game now as if nothing is at stake. Uh, at halftime today, it looked like the second half of how we played in the second half against Man United during the week. It looked like that was a blip that that we'd learned nothing from it and that we weren't bothered about building on it and um you know it you know i want to go i want to go back and i want to talk also about the context of the newcastle game and then quickly the manchester united game uh before finishing up with where this leaves us because you know like a lot of i think like a lot of spurs fans it took me a couple of days to think rationally about the performance at newcastle and and you know all those emergency alert jokes that were going around at the time i mean they were just too on the nose at the time that that was happening on a day when we were being given a, a complete and utter football lesson at that stage and 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 you have to say i mean you know well done to newcastle who are uh having a remarkable spell at the moment as as bereft as we were uh, in 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 that game, they were they were actually brilliant. They were well organized. They were motivated. They knew what was at stake. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier that we go into games now as if there's nothing at stake. There's nothing to play for. And you know, before that game, even a you know even a blind man could have seen the sort of game that we were walking into. And it was it was almost immediately obvious that we hadn't shown up. Um, I, I find myself uh, agreeing a couple of days later with um, uh, what a lot of um, Jack Pitbrook wrote in The Athletic, where he said that Spurs have been in a, an inevitable downward trajectory since we lost the Champions League final in 2019. I, I actually think it probably goes back a couple of seasons before that. Um, but I, I see where he's coming from. But what, of course, what, what, he, what, he, what he stopped short of saying uh, because he was sharing out the blame for our collective underachievement, was that uh, nothing, nothing's going to change uh, until the ownership changes. And, you know, whatever, whatever you might think, if you're a Spurs fan, whatever you might think about the positive things that Levy and Enoch have done for the club in terms of its financial competitiveness, it always comes back, doesn't it? It always comes back to Pochettino's line about how you can have a beautiful house, but you need to fill it with furniture. And and we clearly haven't done that in a way that meant we can move from one level to the next. Um, and there are myriad cultural reasons for that within the club. But you, 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 at the end of the day, you have to take responsibility and you have to come back to the common denominator, which is, which is the ownership. And and I, you know, you and I have talked about this on many occasions at many games, Kev. I I was not. I didn't used to be Levy out because there was always plenty of blame to go around when things were going badly. But but I think we're at the point now where if we want anything to change in terms of the direction of the club, then it's the ownership that has to that has to change. You know, otherwise we're just we're just con condemned to repeat the same mistakes in a in an almost endless cycle of despair.
I apologize for that, but it, it's true. And um, I, I thought it was it was hilarious when when uh, Levy actually did make a statement. He said, "Oh, I the buck stops with me. I take responsibility." Christian Stellini will be leaving tomorrow. I mean, that was you couldn't you couldn't script that again. It was you know, and and to be fair, Stellini did have to go. It didn't it didn't it just didn't make sense to keep the number two of a manager you've just sacked unless unless you literally had no other options. But clearly we did. And now the other option is managing the team. Uh, anyway, sorry. Um, just to uh, put today's game in, in the context of the second half against Man U. Second half, I thought we were brilliant. And I thought if, you know, if Mason can, can use a team talk to get them to play with a, even a scintilla of pride in themselves and the club, then good on them because nobody... Nobody previously has been able to do that. So, you know, that was, uh, yeah. anyway, anyway, there we go. I think it's, it's hard to, it's hard to see today's game, today's disaster outside of the context of those two previous games. We, we, we were, we were given a lesson on uh, against Newcastle. We responded to it uh, against Man U, but then we couldn't build on that. We couldn't build on that second half performance. Uh, and today, and and uh, even in the second half, when when Liverpool, I think, you know, took their took their foot off the uh, off the pedal, they thought the game was won at halftime. Um, you, you just had the sense that we were we were going to be banging our heads against the against a brick wall for no for no outcome, and that's that's essentially how it how it ended up. And and I was thinking, you know, the last time I was on with you, Kevin. Um, uh, we had we had our friend from the Anfield Index, and and you asked us both how confident we were uh, out of ten. Do you remember about finishing in the top four? Mm. And I I I said seven since we since we'd just beaten Chelsea, and our next run of games looked an eminently winnable. And and Conte's meltdown at that stage was still just a, a glint in his eye. I mean, our our Anfield Index friend said four, because, partly because he thought they're their start to the season had been so poor that it would have been it would have been hard to claw back from, but you know it's probably fair to say those assessments can easily and uh, and deservedly be reversed tonight. Hmm. I do think Liverpool are are a few too too many points shy to to meaningfully get into mm-hmm. that top four. But yeah, I mean I, I totally see what you're saying and and how the the last two months have gone really really derailed everything. I, I think you could really toss all of it back to that one week when, when Spurs got knocked out of both the Champions League and the FA Cup. Um, <laughs> I was talking to my wife earlier today because uh, for those that don't know, we found out that there's a player committee at Spurs um, around the time that Stellini was sacked. And uh, apparently Antonio Conte had had told Levy and even some of the players that he wanted to get rid of Dyer, Davis, and Larice um, this summer. And wouldn't you know it that then weeks later when Cellini sacked and we find out not only that a player committee exists, but who's on it, that all three of them are part of it, yeah. uh, along with Skip and Kane. Yeah. And it really just makes you wonder, when was that comment made? Right. Because if you're told that this might be your last season at a club... Right, but you're in with a chance of winning a trophy. That's something that you can kind of put on your legacy. You know, get a replica of the trophy, put it on your wall. Um, you finally helped Tottenham break their their streak of years without a trophy. 
Once that's gone, Mm -hmm. even if you were fighting for top four, you might not be there to see it. So how how does that benefit you? Why why would that be a thing that you'd commit yourself towards amongst the myriad other issues going on at Spurs? <laughs> so I I am wholly unsurprised that it looks like we don't care because I think yeah. a lot of the players probably just don't at this right. stage. They've survived so many managers. They understand that in football it's so hard to move huge amounts of players. Although Palace did a pretty good job of it, and then Burnley did last year with the relegation. Um. But yeah, I, I think there is a level of comfort in understanding that they will probably yet again survive. Whether or not it's those players that survive, time will tell. But uh, yeah, I think we're, we're absolutely seeing uh, not just 11 players, but a squad of players who don't really yeah. see the point. And for the players that aren't in the 11, I totally understand. Because this has not been a meritocracy at Spurs this season. It does not matter how well you perform. It does not matter how well you train. The 11 is basically the 11. With the only uh, two switches ever being Longley and Davis or Kulisevsky and Richarlison. But no, you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It's like playing on a team where you just show up and all your mates basically pick the team. And this is this is the thing. Somebody said to me the other day, well, do you think Ryan Mason will stay on as manager? And, and I said, well, you know, he's so close to the current group that he couldn't probably couldn't preside over the sort of rebuild that we're going to need. It's going to need it's going to need somebody to come in from the outside who can actually just look at the as Conte did and look at the players and say, OK, we, we need upgrades in the following positions. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty tough. And. Uh, a lot of managers have trusted Dyer and Hoybier, um at, to be like leaders at the back. Um, and that hasn't gone particularly well. I think this is one of the worst seasons I've ever seen uh, a center back have, what Eric Dyer is doing this season. But I wanted your thoughts on this. So there are only four teams in the Premier League that have conceded more goals than Tottenham Hotspur this season. Leeds, Bournemouth, Nottingham Forest, Southampton, all famously uh-huh. in the relegation fight. The uh, other teams next to us or just slightly better than us are Leicester and Everton, also mm-hmm. in that relegation fight. Yep. Dyer's gotten a lot of stick, as has Romero, who's having a pretty down year himself. Yep. Could be the context surrounding him. Could be the constant rotation at right back from Emerson to Doherty, who we just randomly released um, yeah. to, to Poro. Uh, the Davis has had his injuries. Longley has been kind of up and down. Perisic has not been the player we thought we were buying. All of that in mind, do you think that our defensive issue? Actually, give me percentages. What percentage of our defensive issues think are due to our actual positioned defenders? And what percentage do you think is down to the midfield, either the ability of the midfield two or the fact that we're always overrun in every match because we're typically playing a midfield two against a midfield three? Yeah, I don't think it's consistent. I don't think it's, I, mean, I, you know, I think. What we saw in the Newcastle game and in the first half today is if somebody makes a mistake, there's like a cloud descends on the entire back three, you know, and, and there's a set. I mean, Davies is probably our most consistent performer in the back three. Dyer, I, I love Eric Dyer and I have a lot of time for him. And I think part of his problem is nobody could ever figure out what his best position was. Because you remember when he when he made his debut for us and he scored against West Ham, he was playing right back. He was playing right back. And then, you know, he, he's, again, it, it sort of feeds into this whole kind of why on earth would Pochettino come back to Spurs 
when most of the players who let him down last time are still here. You know, as I, 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 I honestly thought he would never come back while Levy was in charge. But there's a there's a bigger thing beyond that. In terms of how we how we set up and how we organize the, the defense to the midfield, it's it's different people's faults in different situations. And I don't think you can actually point to one area and say that's where most of the goals are coming from. Um, and, and I didn't I wasn't aware of that stat. That's an appalling stat, actually, that that um, uh, all of the all of those teams who have conceded more than us uh, are are in are in serious well, I, I know uh, Forrest and Southampton have uh, minus 32 goal difference, but, hmm. you know, that's just... Uh, I think we've also I, scored the third most goals this season, but well, that really hides how many we're conceding. That's, that's the thing. I mean, you, you know, I, I look at, at goal difference and say, if you have a goal difference that, that is that bad, like over 30, it doesn't just show you that you have a problem in the defense. You have a problem scoring as well. You have a your problem at both ends of the field. And we do not have a problem putting the ball in the net apart from the, <laughs> apart from the fact that our transition is poor. We can't very often get the ball from the midfield to uh, somebody running into the channels, for example. So I, I, I to your point, I think you you can't really point the finger at any particular one particular player. It's a collective, and it's supposed to be a collective. And if somebody makes a mistake, then everything seems to just go downhill from there. And you know, we talked earlier about the idea that we only start to play once we go behind. It's like it it it's almost you know predictable. It's almost predictable that we can start to turn things around to an extent. It's just it hasn't been enough of an extent uh, in, in, in recent games that actually mattered. And I'm not just talking about the three games this week. I'm talking about previous games mm. like Wolves and, and Southampton as well. You know, So it's, um, it's just desperately disappointing. The inconsistency is disappointing. Yep, agreed. Uh, I just think it's it's a mix of all the things. Uh, I think you could basically remove any of uh, about a thousand things that happened to Spurs this season and you'd have a more successful season. But um, I, I think the midfield too was a horrendous mistake. I think playing with three defenders is a really big mistake because if the goal is to get your best 11 players on the pitch, we've never right. done that this season because right. you're always right. deciding to pick your third or fourth best center back over one of your, your main attacking options. And yeah, just being overrun in midfield as heavily as we have. I mean, the, the second half against Manchester United, which is probably the best we've actually played yeah, um, yeah. In, in recent memory, Kane became a midfielder with yes, Son and Richarlison yeah. pushing forward, which allowed Kane to actually mark someone in the midfield, which then gave the other two a little bit more freedom. Uh, I just think whoever oh. comes in next year has to play uh, either. I guess it doesn't really matter the formation, but you have to be playing a midfield three, whether it be... Um, yeah. two defensive midfielders and an attacking midfielder or uh, two box-to-box midfielders and any combination of those things that you want. 4-2-3-1, 4-3-3. Even if you want to go with what Conte won Inter's uh, title with, although I, I think many Spurs fans are just emotionally done with the back three. Um, <laughs> yeah. But doing a 3-5-2 and still having that midfield three. 
um, that, yeah. that really helped Ericsson figure out how to track back, which is benefiting Manchester United this year. Anyway, and, we could talk that, about... You hit, the, you hit the nail on the head, absolutely, because we've never replaced Ericsson. And, yeah. and part of the problem is we, we, we are, we're actually more potent, potentially more potent, when Harry drops back into that Ericsson role and plays, you know, playing the ball into the channels for Kulisevsky and, um, and so on. I, that's why if Harry goes, Madison would be a, would be a good addition, I think, because he can play in that in that um, uh, drop deep um, midfield role. Yep. So but we'll see. Well, I mean, that's a that's a conversation for a whole other day. <laughs> it truly, truly is. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, well, we'll wrap up here with match previews, or in this case, match preview, since it's Tottenham versus Crystal <laughs> Palace. Uh, Sam, I gotta mention your. I got to imagine you're feeling pretty confident after about 20 minutes we just spent ranting about Spurs. But what are you thinking heading into this one? Yeah, you'd think that I'd be confident until you look at our record against Spurs. I just I feel like we Spurs always come into this fixture on a terrible run of form and then end up like trouncing us 4-0 or something. I think that like the very same thing happened earlier this season when I think you guys were some sort of run where you that hadn't true. scored the first goal in a game for like 11 matches and then Kane was just unplayable that night. Um, you guys basically gave us the runaround and, yeah, it was 4-0. Um, and I think our record at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and even White Hart Lane before that is really, really bad. Uh, I think we've maybe scored, like, once at the new stadium. Um, not that we've played there that many times, but still not the best record. So, yeah, on paper, um, and I hate using phrase on paper on paper a lot of people will probably be looking at this palace having won a number of their uh, having only lost one of one game under hodgson um and spurs being in the state they are at the moment a lot of people will be thinking that palace will go there and and win it but um i've been watching palace for far too many years to think that that's going to happen i think every single palace fan will probably be thinking the same and saw a few tweets to they saying something along the lines of uh, I'd like to congratulate Spurs on their return to form next week. So, uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, I, I, we, there's no reason for Palace not to go and win the game. Like we are in great form. Um, our, our team's fit. Everyone's pretty confident. Um, we're playing some exciting stuff and you sort of think that we'd have the players to kind of take advantage of some of that fragility that Spurs seem to have at the back at the moment. Um so yeah, fingers crossed. It's a good day for us. But I, yeah, I've I've seen this I've seen this script all so many times before. So I, I, there's there's no part of me that wants to say we're going to win the game. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I feel pretty much the same. I mean, uh, I actually thought, to be honest, because I just got back from the US, and I I, um, uh, I thought that because of the coronation, the Premiership program was going to be postponed. And uh, I texted uh, Kevin and I have a, a Palace supporting friend, Johnny Hopkins. And I texted him saying, "Hey, mate, we we play you next week, um, but uh, it, it, were the are the is the Premiership program postponed because of the carnation?" He says, "No, no, no, you'll get back on track next week." And I said, "No, no, I don't think so. Don't think so somehow." But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, Roy has created a sense of self belief about Palace that I, I think, as Sam said, it, it, it's as simple as playing your best players in their best positions. And, and you know, Ryan Mason could probably learn a bit from that. But games like this at, at, at this stage of the season do come down very much to momentum and confidence. And, and Palace have it at the moment. 
we clearly don't, um, given what happened over the past three games. But uh, uh, if if we could recapture some of the way we played against Man United in the second half, um, then uh, who knows? I, I I don't want to predict. I mean, I would I would feel a little less confident if we were going to Selhurst rather than um, uh, rather than having it at home. But um, yeah, I don't want to don't want to predict it at this stage. Gotcha. Uh, and Sam, I totally understand your hesitation because uh, Erickson used to always score the winner against you and then he left and now it's Sun every time. Um, so obviously I'm not feeling yeah, comfortable, just... but it's worth noting Tottenham have won one match in their last seven. And here's the fun part. I was there for it. <laughs> I got to see the Brighton match where they were robbed of about seven goals and Sonny scored his hundredth. And uh, what a what a fun reprieve that was in the middle of this absolute <laughs> horror show. Um, <laughs> well, that's the thing, isn't it? There's always there's always the potential for that to happen. There's always like Spurs just have enough good players for like one day it just to go right, and right. it usually tends to happen against Crystal Palace. It's like <laughs> we are just that team that are we are that one in those stats. Like it's like Frank Lampard's one win in his last twenty Premier League games <laughs> was against. Crystal Palace. It was like two of Graham Potter's six wins as Chelsea managers were against Crystal Palace. It's just we are that stat. We are always that stat. So, yeah, <laughs> forgive me for not being overly confident. Despite I, the form, but... I don't think we've concentrated enough on just how much disarray Chelsea are in at the moment. I mean, that's even worse than ours. But then the worst thing is the fact that Pochettino is about to go there is because he sees that as a potentially better project than us. Well, we never <laughs> called him. So who knows what he thinks about us in comparison to them. But that's a failure on a whole different level that I'm sure we'll talk about on a future episode of EPL Roundtable. Um, but thanks to you two so much for coming on today. Uh, if you want to tell the folks where they can find you or anything you're working on, now would be a great time. Yeah, cheers, Kev. Thanks, Steve. Really enjoyed that. Um, I've been Sam Karp. Uh, you can find me on Sam double underscore Karp if you want to read some occasional articles I write about Palace. You can find that on the Eagles Beak. And if you want to read some stuff I write about the sports industry at large, you can find that on the Sports Pro website. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Thank you, Kevin, for having me back again. Uh, you can get me on Twitter at uh, uh, Steve McGookin. Uh, and if you want to read my uh, other stuff, which is uh, I read a blog about uh, baseball and American society, you can get that at statesofplayproject.com. Yeah, and I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. You can find me on Twitter at Kevroff. You can find the show at EPL Roundtable uh, on Twitter and in all of your podcast services. But yeah, thanks again to these two for coming on. And folks at home, we hope you keep listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.